Hey, if, uh, if you have your Bibles, have them handy, but you're going to probably want to just uh, follow along with what's going to be on the screens because we're going to walk through some big chunks of Scripture today, which uh, we've been doing throughout this whole series that we've been in. that We started a number of weeks ago. It's called The Gospel Shapes. And uh, it came out of a series that was before that. So if you're visiting to kind of catch you up a little bit, we went through a series to help us understand that there's, there's this place in time where we come to understand what we call the gospel, which is God's big plan of reconnecting everybody and everything back to him through Jesus. And as that's unfolding in human history, there's a challenge that we face, that we can believe enough of the gospel to believe that we're saved, but sometimes not allow it to drop into our soul that, so that we're actually changed or transformed. And the, whole, the good news of the gospel isn't just that you don't go to hell. The good news of the gospel is that you can live a changed life, and that starts today. So because of that, we come into this series now to realize that the gospel shapes every aspect of our lives. And we use the analogy of a coin that goes into a machine, and it doesn't do anything until that coin drops. And the gospel enters into us, and in the truth of it, it doesn't do anything until what? It drops into our soul. What does it look like when the gospel drops into our soul? It begins to shape and change and transform every aspect of our lives. And so this series is going through a number of different things that the gospel touches in our lives. And so the last few weeks, first week, we talked about the one prerequisite and the one key to unlocking the gospel is this thing called obedience, which is not some obligation or something that God's trying to twist our arm, but it's this understanding that God ultimately knows what's best for us. He knows what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, and we trust him with that through our obedience, and that's the way that we relate to God. And we talked about that in this series. Our commitment is to choose to say yes to obeying Jesus without edit or compromise, which is hard, but it's because he knows ultimately what is best in our lives. But also understanding that we go through this, John Looney talked about last week, he talked about how the gospel shapes this thing called discipleship. And to summarize what that is, is the ultimate goal of discipleship is intimacy with God. It's being reconnected with God. And so our journey of following Jesus means we get closer and closer to him and we experience a deep intimacy and connection with him. So now it leads to, to this week, which is actually was started out as a one week and now it's going to be two weeks because there's too much to cover. And it's everybody's favorite topic. It's the one topic that everybody says, Pastor, please don't speak on this when I bring my friend to church. It's the topic of money. Because everybody's like, oh no, man, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Well, I think the last time we talked about money was like over a year ago, so... So I think we've earned the right to talk about money, okay? So how does the gospel shape our understanding of money? This is a big question. In fact, I think it's bigger than we even realize. Because if you take some time and you go through the gospels, one of the things that you start to discover is that Jesus seemed to talk about money a lot. In fact, if you go through all four gospels, you know, you'll find that Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. And we spend a lot of time on those other topics, but we kind of brush money aside because I know I've discovered in my own life personally and that I've also seen through the scriptures and in the lives of other people is that the way we handle, the way we view, the way we focus on money says more about our understanding of the gospel than probably most other things in our life. But we don't see it that way because we don't think of money in spiritual terms. We think of it in practical terms. And so today we're going to start kind of the first part, then we'll go to the second part next week. But the, today we're going to talk about, I'm going to go to three different stories uh, where Jesus, uh, where the gospel story actually addresses money and how people respond to, to that money. But before we do that, I want to just to pause about, and, and I want you just to think about something, because I think this is true for all of us. 
So all of us have been either we've we've experienced some kind of windfall. Some of us are hoping that we would experience some kind of financial windfall. Some of us are holding out hope that we're going to win the lottery. Good luck with that one. And we have all these ideas. In fact, I know every single person in this room has probably done this at one time or another. What would I do if I had a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million? Anybody want to, you've, you've, you've played that scenario out, right? And we go down that road, and what do we, we're going to pay off all of our debt. We're going to pay off all of our family's debt. We're going we're to buy a new house. We're going to quit our job. We're going to retire early, have all these plans, right? We do all of that, and we, we think, man, wouldn't that be amazing? And we think, this is what we think. If I had more money, my life would be better, right? That's what we all believe. That's why we want more. That's why <laughs> the lottery is a billion-dollar industry every year, because we all have hopes. If I just had more money, I'd have what I want. What happens for most people is that dream, when it becomes a reality, actually becomes a nightmare. Because the thing we think that money's going to deliver to us, it actually doesn't. It promises a lot, but it doesn't deliver on those things. But you know, there's a, there's a different narrative, there's a different dream that I think that God would call us to dream that, that has really nothing to do with money, but it's the very thing that's going to give us the thing that we think money's going to give us, and it's this dream. When was the last time you, not dream about more money in your life, when was the last time you dreamed about more Jesus in your life? What would it look like if Jesus really got a hold of these areas of my life? What if the, the ongoing struggles and addictions that I've had my whole life, I found freedom because of what Jesus has done in my life? What if, what if the relationships that I've struggled with for so many years were actually now starting to change and be healthy? Not because the other person changed, because God changed me so dramatically and now my life is what it's supposed to be. When was the last time we had those kind of dreams? Because what we're dreaming of is we're dreaming of fulfillment and contentment and meaning. And the only thing that can deliver on that is Jesus through the gospel. So is it wrong to think about money? No, it's not wrong to think about money. But I think when we think we dream about this reality of what life would look, I do it all the time. I think about, I think about man, what would I do for the church if I had $10 million? What would I do for the gospel? What would I do for missions? Oh, all these great ideas. And so far, God hasn't dropped $10 million in my lap. Maybe because he has a bigger plan that's better than what I can come up with when he gives me money. So I want us to think about that today because there's some count encounters I want us to read through in, in, in the, the New Testament here. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10 if you want to follow along in your Bible. Also, let me remind you on the Bible app, which is version, we have a live, there's a thing under events that says live, and it has all the notes that we're going to cover. In fact, a little heads up, it has the notes we're going to cover next week because I just made a decision yesterday to split these into two messages because I don't want you guys to be here till 3 o'clock. Aren't you glad, right? Because you got food and football. I know that's coming, right? So three things I want to talk about. What, is it, what does it look like when the gospel actually impacts this thing called money in our life? So, so the first one is this. What does it look like when the gospel confronts our view of money? Where we don't think that we have an issue with money, but suddenly somehow the gospel, Jesus, confronts something that we didn't realize was there and it causes an issue for us. In fact, these are some familiar stories probably. We've, we've referenced them in the last couple months. But this is what we would call this, the guy that Jesus encounters here. We call him the rich young ruler. We don't even have his name, but we have his encounter with Jesus, which is very profound. So let me read verse 17 down to verse 27 of Mark 10. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, 
you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus, looking at them, said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So when we read that, if, if you're familiar with that story, when we read that story, there's a couple things that happen for us. We think Jesus is being a little extreme, like really go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Like we couldn't, he couldn't possibly ask me to do that. So we, we brush this story off. Or most of us look at this and he says, oh, well, he's addressing a rich guy. I'm not rich. Whew, I'm off the hook. You recall, if you live in the United States, guess what you are? You're rich. Compared to the world standards, we are wealthy. Even what would be considered some of the most poor in our, in our nation are wealthy compared to some of those in the other countries. So this story really isn't just about the 1%. This story is about the 99% in our country. This is about all of us. This is an encounter that Jesus has with all of us. And there's some observations. I just want us to look at what, what's there and what's being said without just glossing over. And this is what's some important things. In verse 20, you'll notice this, that we can actually be moral and wealthy and still miss it. We can actually have all of our ducks in a row, all of our life together. What, what this guy was saying, this is impressive. He comes to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, have you kept the law? And every box that Jesus puts out there, he checks. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. That's impressive. That's a pretty impressive moral resume to say that, listen, since I was a kid, I've done everything that the law requires. And you think, well, man, he's good. That's what he's thinking. But then Jesus, reading through all of his moralism, which is what we tend to gravitate towards, he gets to the core of what's going on. His issue is not his morality. His issue is money. And that's important for us to understand because morality doesn't save you, but we're convinced it does. We shoot for a moral code, and that's why when people don't live moral lives, we deal with behavior and not realize that behavior is a is, is the consequence or the reality of what's going on inside of somebody. And so when, when we, we have to be careful because I, the last thing that you and I want to be is stand before God as a moral, rich person. There I am. I did it. Handled money well, and I checked off all the boxes. And Jesus looks at him and says, what does it say? It says, Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. Why? Because he saw past all the stuff that was on the outside of what this guy was trying to do. Second thing that's true about an observation from this is in verse 25, you'll see that money can be one of the greatest barriers to following Jesus. So many times when we, when we experience uh, financial hardship, we get mad at God, God, why don't you supply for me? And then when we get money, we say, God, thank you for blessing me, which those realities could be true. But here's the, here's, here's the reality that maybe is true, is that sometimes when we think money is a blessing, actually money can actually be a curse because it can be the very barrier that keeps us from God. This is so true. If you, look, you watch Israel's history, they're nomads. They're in, they're in slavery for over 400 years, and then they get, they, God sets them free out of Egypt, and then they wander around for 40 years, and finally when they get into their land, that's when the wheels really come off. Why? Because they get everything. They get the wealth of the land, they get the possession of the land, they get the priority of the land, and what's one of the first things they do when they get their land? If you recall, they squeeze God completely out of the equation. They say, we want a king just like everybody else. 
and they become so, so enamored with the blessing that God has given them, they forget God altogether. And that's one of the dangers I know I've found in my life is that the more money I have, the easier it is not to rely on God anymore. Because really what this man was saying, what he was saying to Jesus, I don't need God. I have morality and money. And that's where we are in, in the church. And that's where we are in our country. Why are we so morally bankrupt? Because we've made morality and wealth the goal of our country. And both of them come up, what, short? Because the deeper issues in our life are not being dealt with. And so if we understand that, I know it's getting a little quiet, and you're like, whoa, whoa, Pastor John, what are you saying? One of, one of the other things I'm saying is the gospel will always confront our view of money. It always will. If your, your view of money and your understanding of money doesn't change, the gospel hasn't dropped yet. It's so true. And you'll see that as we, as we go on here. The fact that Jesus loves moral people. He loves wealthy people. But he also warns them strongly, you're playing with fire. Now, I'm not saying, listen, I know one thing Jesus is not saying is that he's not saying to every single one of us, you need to sell all, of your, all your possessions and give your money to the poor because he's dealing with a specific issue in this man's life. But there's a good warning for all of us. Don't get to that place. Don't get to that place where money is the end all for you. And both sides, money can be the end all that you want more and money could be the end all that you have none and because of that, you still focus on money and not on God. You can be in debt and overwhelmed and living in poverty and you're still focusing on money. You can have all the money in the world and you're still focusing on money and you've missed God in both scenarios because we become so enamored with it. We become so focused on it. I want you just to think about this for a minute. Where have you said no to Jesus because you've said yes to money? How many, how many decisions have you made in your life that are based on, I can't afford that? Or if I were to do that, I can't work those hours and I can't make that money. And so you say, oh, you know, I just can't do that right now. And so again, what's the choice to say money first? You know, I think there's a couple areas where we do this particularly, and I know I'm guilty of this, is that when it comes to comfort and security, we struggle with saying yes to Jesus. Because we, we're convinced that money allows us to live a certain standard of living, a comfort level, and provides a certain security for us for the future. And so when we live in those realities, we struggle. Why? Because we want to maintain a certain standard of living. So those of you who are, are, have, have, you know, in your late 40s, 50s, 60s, you always, and those who are starting out, know right where you're at right now. When you're starting out, maybe you're just married or maybe you're, you're just out of college. Or, and if you're just being honest, you got nothing, right? You're renting an apartment or a house and, you know, you barely can afford the car that's, you know, that, that is barely functioning, you know. You're just starting out. And then over time, you know, where you start to, advance in your career and you start to make more money then you eventually move out of an apartment situation and maybe you're able to buy a house and then you're able to buy a car anybody know the scenario i'm unfolding right and what happens is that you you were able to live at a certain level for a long time and then as more money came what did you do you spent more money and then you spent more money and spent more and now you reach this season of life 45 to 65 you have a certain standard of living and this is right where I'm living right now, that you reach a certain comfort level. And when something comes along that either threatens or asks you to question that comfort level, we react. We react against it. Well, no, 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 no. Why? Because we've now obligated ourselves to the car payment, to the house payment, to the retirement fund, to all the things that we have to do. And if we don't make a certain amount of money, then we can't live at the standard of living that we're at and we have to downgrade it. Oh, God forbid we downgrade, right? And so there's this... this this tension that we live in, this tension that we're always fighting in our lives. And there's the, 
this, the other side is which it's the security that we have in our money. And please hear me, I'm not saying this is a bad idea, but I'm just saying I've watched it in our culture. We are obsessed with financial planning. Turn your TV on this week and tell, count, count how many commercials there are for financial planners and investors. How much stuff is tied to the stock market? How much is tied to your 401k? How much of a panic is put into you? You're not gonna have enough money to retire. You can't, what, you won't be able to live at the same standard of living, so you gotta save more money. I know, I've gone on, and I looked at my, my retirement fund, and it has the little calculators. Anybody done that? Man, I am sunk. I don't have enough money because, you know, I want to keep my standard of living, right? So what do you do? Every day you obsess. When the stock market starts to tip down, you go, oh, no, here goes my retirement. Oh, the sky is falling. We're going to fall apart, right? What is that? It's saying that I have more belief in money than I do in God's provision. I'm trusting more in money than I'm trusting in God. There's a great example of somebody who talk about standard of living. So John Wesley, many of you heard of John Wesley, who was, who was a revivalist who lived and, and, and lots of people came to Christ through this guy. But I think what spoke more about his understanding of Jesus wasn't literally the thousands, if not millions of people who were impacted by his message and his preaching and people coming to know Jesus, but was impacted by his lifestyle. He was probably one of the most generous people you will ever meet in your life. Because he started out like most of us and wasn't making a whole lot of money. And, and the, of course, he didn't live in our current standard of living or our current finances. But someone's ran some numbers. And when he first started out, he was making about $20,000 a year. And I think eventually when he got up to about $40,000 a year early on and whatever, when he was doing it, he started writing books and things like that. He made a commitment. He said, no matter how much more money I make, I choose to live off this much money. And I don't know, modern day standard would be about $40,000 a year. So even if he made a million dollars, he's still going to live off $40,000 a year. What did he do with the rest of it? He gave it away. He just, he did. He, he gave it to all kinds of things. He gave it to missions, opportunities. He gave it to people who were in need. He gave it to the poor. He did all these kinds of things. And, and what was crazy is that they estimated that he was making about $160,000 a year in modern standards. And he was living off about $40,000, maybe a little bit less. And so that means he was giving away what? like four times his income. He's like, the other three-fourths of it is gone. They're like, well, that's not very wise. That's not good stewardship. It is if you trust in Jesus. And here's the crazy thing about John Wesley. He died penniless, but he didn't die poor. In fact, they, they, their stories about, and I don't know if this is true, but, but when he died, he had like some money, some change spread around his house and some money in his pockets. And that was left for the, for, to pay the poor people who were going to carry his coffin to his grave. So literally, he left this world with zero. You're like, well, wait, what about his kids? Well, if they were trusting Jesus like John Wesley trusted Jesus, he didn't have to worry. And I share that because here's a guy who made a commitment that I'm going to make sure in my life I trust Jesus, not money. So I'm not going to let money change the way I live my life. I'm still going to be dependent on Jesus whether I have little or whether I have a lot. So when we come to this story, we're, we're confronted with this reality that, that the gospel confronts our understanding, our view of money. That because ultimately, who are we supposed to rely on? Jesus. And that's important. Here, I, I get this. Because I know I, I, I live in a reality that I have my own personal finances, but also we have the church finances. And so the church is a ministry, but the church is also a business. And yes, finances concern me when it comes to the church. And so I think about those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I realize my life belongs to Jesus. This church belongs to Jesus. And he's who we rely on for resources. We trust him. 
And man, when I have those moments where I trust him, it, it is so wonderful to have that weight lifted off of my shoulders to realize that Jesus is the one who's in charge. Okay, I'll move on. You guys are really quiet this morning. That's okay. Just to warn you, as usual, it doesn't get any easier moving forward. Second thing. Second thing is this reality. What does it look like when the gospel not only confronts but changes our view of money? Actually gets to the core of who we are and starts to change things. So you've heard this story before, and I love this because remember Zacchaeus is not just this short guy. Zacchaeus has become one of the most generous people that you would ever meet. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, so let's, let's read the story. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And when he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my, of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. So he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus was super wealthy, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but because he, he was a legalized extortionist is what he was. Because he could take money from the Jews to give to the Romans, and then he could take whatever he wanted for himself. And he did that. And so he was considered by tax collectors a success. He was hated by his own people, but he had money, a lot of it. And so when Jesus confronts him, and, and this is what I, I'm, I'm pretty confident about this. We don't have the record of the interaction here. And I'm pretty sure the way Jesus works is I'm sure Jesus didn't go right after Zacchaeus' money, but something happened to Zacchaeus that he addresses it. And the reason we know probably Jesus didn't talk about money because when Zacchaeus responds, he doesn't respond according to the law. He responds according to the passion in his heart. Because when you defrauded somebody, according to the law, you had to pay back twice what you stole from them. But what does he say? Four times. I'm sure Jesus didn't say, okay, well, it's double for you, Zacchaeus. There's probably a dialogue that didn't happen, but spontaneously, he's so overwhelmed with who Jesus is, he goes right to his core issue, which is what? Money. And he starts to change the way. This is a greedy, stingy, extorting, not a nice guy to be around. It suddenly changes over in a moment, changes his view of money. What he wouldn't let go of and he was greedy about, he now is just letting it go. What is that? The gospel dropped. He met Jesus. And Jesus obviously encountered him at, at the core level of who he is. But you know, one of the things that's true about the story of Zacchaeus is that it tells us that the gospel will change your view of financial ethics. It will. Because you know that there's, I'm not, I wouldn't, I don't know, have firsthand knowledge of anybody in this room, but I know there's all of us, we struggle with the ethics of finances. We do it when it comes to our taxes. Well, we want to make sure that we write off as much as possible and we slightly bend it just a little bit. You know, I can write that off, right? Or whatever it is, you, you know, we, we, we come to opportunities where we know we can make a little bit more money if, as long as nobody knows what's really going on. And that's something that's easy to do. Why? Because when we're driven by money, more is better. And more is better makes what means that I'm being, I'd be willing to compromise in some regard to get a little bit more. That's what Zacchaeus was doing. And suddenly, spontaneously, he realizes his whole idea of financial ethics has changed. Why? Because now he's going to repay people, 
and he's going to actually, he's going to do the one thing that you wouldn't do if you're a rich person. He's going to go sell his possessions and give to the poor. Why would he do that? Why? Because for a rich guy who's made money, usually looks at the poor and says, well, you deserve that. You're not a good steward of money. You're not a good financial genius. You're not what I am. And so why would I waste my fortune on you? But now he's changed because he's encountered Jesus. This is important for us to understand because it's gonna, something will happen. We will be changed. The way we handle and the way we view money will be changed. This is one of the struggles, honestly, I had growing up with my dad. I love my dad, but man, I, was, I don't know where it came from, but I was, I was pretty cheap growing up. And I know my parents are frugal and they're cheap, but I'll tell you, one of the things I realized with my dad as I watched him growing up, and I've shared story after story about him, is that there are so many decisions that he made that were defined by this simple phrase. It's just money. It's just money. What I would stress out about. I've told the story where we had a skateboard stolen out of our front yard, and my dad, went, we went up the street to confront the kid who had stolen the skateboard because we knew we got evidence from our neighbor who stole it. And we went to the door. I was ready for this guy to just, he was gonna, my dad was going to let him have it. And instead, my dad says, I heard that you really like skateboards. That's not why we're here, Dad. And the kid goes, yeah, I really do. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to give you the money in my wallet to help you save up so you can buy a skateboard. My dad cleans out his wallet and hands it over to the kid, and then we walk away. <laughs> I was mad. You could, I could ask my dad. I was mad. I'm like, what are you doing? Now he's got our skateboard, and he's got our money. And my dad just was quiet. And then I, you've heard the story. The next morning, 7 o'clock, doorbell rings. Guess who's standing there? The kid, his father, the skateboard, and the money. I'm like, okay, Dad, you're a genius. That's, that was smart. <laughs> or the other time when our neighbor wanted to borrow a lawnmower, and he broke it. He decided to mow his ivy. I don't know. He said they have ivy mowers in Texas. We're like, never been there. He mowed over a sprinkler that was made out of pipe, and it broke the blade and destroyed the lawnmower. And so he limps the lawnmower back over and gives it to my dad. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. You know, it, it, I hit something in the ivy, and my dad, I'm thinking, here we go, dad. He's got to pay for it. My dad's like, no problem. So my dad took the lawnmower, had to get a new blade, had to get it fixed. I'm like, dad but he saw something more important. This is a guy who he befriended over the years. He witnessed to him time and time and time again about God's grace in his life. Another time there was one, a gal that we, my parents would take in single, single gals all the time in, in our household and one borrowed our car one day and she scraped it along the side of her house backing out. I'm like, dad's like, no big deal. I'll take it, I'll get it fixed. I'm like, dad, these are not good financial decisions. but it's just money. And if it's God's money, what does it matter? Because the person matters more than the money. And that's what Zacchaeus realized. The people he was defrauding, defrauding, he was stealing from, they mattered more than the money he was making off of them. And when the gospel finally gets a hold of us, it changes the way we do business. It changes the way we view finances because we've gotten, finally Jesus has gotten a hold of us. Another thing it does, it deals with greed, but also it, it allows us to become generous. And the reason you become generous when God confronts your money or he changes in the way that you view money is because you finally realize you're not supposed to serve money. When we serve money, we're greedy. When we serve Jesus, we're generous. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And we're like, yeah, I don't do that. And like, yeah, we do do that. Because <laughs> we're obsessed with it. 
It dominates our lives. Why? We're serving it. We're a slave to it. It controls our schedule. It controls our decisions. And that means who wins? Money wins. But if Jesus wins, money's not an issue. Why? Because I'm willing to be generous with what I have because I realize that Jesus is the one who takes care of me. And then there's this, the final thing. And that's this, is that the gospel actually shapes our view of money. So when, when we're confronted with this reality of, of, okay, I got a money issue, and then when the gospel drops, it starts to sh- change the way I view that. But then ultimately, it starts touching all these areas of my life where I didn't think it was going to touch because money has a lot to do with the way we relate to people. And this is really interesting. So in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, this, is, this isn't even Jesus. This is before Jesus comes on the scene. And a group of people are now, John the Baptist has gotten their attention. He's preaching about the repentance in preparation for Jesus coming. And so groups of people have come out to listen to this wild man in the wilderness who's a little crazy, but he's making sense to them. And he's talking about this thing called repentance. And so as he's preaching about this, they're asking him, what does repentance look like for me? In fact, in this story, let me read, there's actually three groups of people that he addressed. And what I want you to look at is look what John the Baptist says about what repentance looks like for each group of people. There's a common denominator that runs all the way through them. So starting in verse 10, it says, And the crowds asked him, this is asking John the Baptist, what, sh- what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And then verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then verse 14, soldiers also came to him He says, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Wait a second. Did John the Baptist just do what I thought he did? He said, repentance has a lot to do with the way you handle and view money and how it relates to other people in your life. That one, I didn't discover that until about three years ago. And guess who told me? My dad. <laughs> we were talking about this. He goes, yeah, he goes, you ever realize what John the Baptist said to people about what repentance looks like? And I'm like, no. He goes, go read. I'm like, oh, okay. And then boom. I'm like, whoa. This is before Jesus even comes on the scene. He's warning. So what does he say? So the crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers. How does he address each group? So the crowds, what does he tell them to do? He tells them this. He says the gospel is going to make you wealthy, but to be generous. In other words, he, when he says, if you have two tunics, you need to give to one. Two tunics in that day and age was excessive. You need more than one at a time. So he's saying if you have resource beyond what you need to meet your needs, then what, do you, how does, how does, what does repentance preparation look like for Jesus coming in your life? What excess I have is no longer mine. I give it away generously. Wow, just think about that for a moment. So no, I don't have excess. I don't have excess. Well, a lot of us do. What do we do with the excess? Do we keep saving it? put in our retirement? Do we save up for the next toy? What do we do with it? Or do we say, God, what do you want me to do with this excess that I have? Is there somebody who needs who doesn't have excess? Second thing, tax collectors. So when he addresses the tax collectors, this is the reality he shares them. The gospel makes those who are dishonest, honest with money. That's what happens. Somebody, and I've seen this happen time and time again. I've heard stories too a very successful businessman who made money based on fraud and dishonesty. And the moment they meet Jesus, they're willing to give it all up. They're willing to uncover themselves. Why? 
because they realize what they've made is not what is honoring to the Lord. And then the soldiers, what does he say to the soldiers? When the gospel impacts our hearts, what happens is it takes, it takes the discontent in our life and it makes us content. It makes us content with what we have. And this is in, important. Why? Because the soldiers can, what, what he's addressing in the soldiers is they're, they're, they're paid a wage, obviously like those in the military, but they're probably putting their life on the line. They're, they're doing dangerous things and they feel like we are justified for more money. So why shouldn't we ask for more money and extort it from other people? And the gospel reaches them and says, no, 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 no. You'd be content with what you have. Why? Because we don't trust our ability to make money. We trust God's ability to resource it in our lives. And when we have that, we don't have to grasp. We don't have to use people. We don't have to do that. But what if, just for a moment, think about this, because this isn't true for all of us, but I know there's seasons in my life where I feel this. What if we weren't on the take? Which means, what if we weren't always looking for an angle of how to get more money? how to make more money, how to save more money, how to manage more money, how to pay down more debt. Nothing against financial peace. I love Dave Ramsey, but sometimes I've watched people go through Dave Ramsey stuff and you become hyper-focused on money. You've forgotten Jesus because you become such a whiz at getting your emergency funds set away and saving and, and, and snowballing your debt. All these great things, you become the guru on finances and you forget, wait a second, <laughs> Jesus supplies your needs so that you become radically generous. So again, it's, it's that focus. So when we think about this in our life, what if we were able to be free with money so that we don't feel like every time that something comes up, we're like, ah. This is one of the things I found out in my life. If I check my bank account to see if I can give, I'm not obeying God. I'm not saying that for you, but Kim and I have come to this conclusion. We, when, when we're confronted with a need that somebody has, we don't go say, okay, well, what do our bills look like? And of course, I know how much money we have in the bank, but I don't, don't go check finances. Because if I do, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start managing it. You say, well, this is what I can afford to give. But if it's God's money anyway, even if I give more than I think I can afford, guess what he's going to do? He's going to supply my needs. He's going to take care of me. What, it would, what would it feel like to not worry about that and really trust God? I'm going to tell you, let me tell you a story of I encountered a group of people that live this way and they don't live in our country. And I was blown away by their generosity. Because they have far less than I have, but they give far more away. So when I was in Uganda, this is just one kind of one day in a two-week trip for all over the country of Uganda. And so we got up staying in what would be considered a nicer hotel for, for their standards, which was really interesting. They shut the power off at night because they're running on a generator because the city's power would go down in this little community in northern Uganda and literally had to go down to the front desk at like six in the morning and said, we want to take a shower and we're hoping for hot water. Could you turn on the power? I'm like, oh, sure, for you. Yeah, for you, which means they all were up at 4 a.m. taking cold showers, but that doesn't matter. I'm an American, right? So we get up and we eat a breakfast at the hotel, and then we're on the road to, to start visiting some different people in northern Uganda. And if you don't know northern Uganda, northern Uganda had been decimated by the Lord's Resistance Army and child, uh, child soldiers and all kind of horrific things. And so you're encountering horrific stories every single day, every place that you stop. So the first place we stopped was the pastor with, we stopped at his parents' house. So we had eaten breakfast at like seven. It was like 10. And guess what? We walked in and, and I mean, humble little home. I mean, just, just a step above a hut. And there's eight of us on the team and they had been preparing all morning another breakfast for us. And gave all, I mean, you would not believe, it was a feast. And I'm like, I just ate at the hotel not too long ago. I'm like, well, and you're thinking it's rude. So we ate some more. So then we got on the road again, and about two, three hours later, we reach 
um, a Bible school, which is for pastors in remote part of northern Uganda, no electricity, and they had known our team was coming, and so some ladies had gotten up and had worked all night long to prepare food. They had no refrigeration, but they prepared, and, and we're sitting in this room with some other pastors who are in the school, and these women start bringing in food, and I'm not exaggerating. They kept bringing in platter after platter after platter, and I had some of it. I had no idea what it was, but I could tell they worked really hard on it. They had no money. They had no resource. In fact, this Bible school was struggling, and yet they made this huge feast. So what did we have to do again? We ate again. And then we left there. Another two-hour, three-hour trip, we ended up in an orphanage. And there was kids all there, and the, the lady who ran the orphanage knew we were coming, and so she went, and she, at her own personal expense, she didn't take money from the orphanage, at her own personal expense, she had made some of, I guess, what is kind of her famous cake that everybody loves. And she didn't make just a little, she made a ton. So after I'd had three meals, and now we're at like two in the afternoon, I've already eaten three meals, now I'm eating cake. <laughs> and the joy that she had in, in letting us have it. And then finally that night, we ended up at the Archbishop's house for Uganda of the Episcopal Church. And so he had a little bit more means, but, but then we sat down at his dinner table and literally had another four-course meal. I'm like, time out. Seriously, at the end of the day, when I lay down, I'm like, I'm sick. <laughs> Who thought I would have been sick in Uganda from too much food? But as I started to retrace my steps for that day, I realized that every person I encountered, every group of people that we visited, had given everything they have. They didn't even serve themselves that level of food, but they had done it for us. And they did it with joy. And they did it with excitement. And I thought, Lord, what do they have that I don't have? They have peace. They have trusted Jesus every day of their life since they came to know him, and they've trusted him for every meal that they've ever had. They trust him for a roof over their head. They trust him for everything. And yet they're so much happier than I am. How is that possible? It's because they had learned to not let money dominate their lives. And that's why if you, if those of you gone to Haiti, Haiti's in a world of hurt, but Haitians are happier than Americans, aren't they? Ugandans are happier than Americans. Kenyans are happier than Americans. Just go down the list. You can, most countries dealing with issues of poverty, you find people who follow Jesus, they're happier than we are. Why? Because they trust Jesus for the resource of their lives. And what if we were that way? What if we didn't have to be on the take? What if we didn't have that tension about, oh, that's wasteful, or I can't afford that, or this big bill came up, or somebody needs money? What if that tension wasn't there? What would that be called? That would be called freedom. And that's what we're supposed to have. We're supposed to be free to give what generously away. Why? Because I'm not so worried about where it's going to come from because I know where it's coming from. It's coming from Jesus. And that's why when we look at the early church, they were radically generous. I mean, think about this. They would go out and sell a piece of property that they had for years. And they would come and take the money and they'd lay it at the apostles' feet and said, whoever has need. It actually says in Acts, there was a season of time in the church where nobody had need. Nobody why? Because everybody had pulled their resources together because, what well, they were trusting Jesus. And here's, here's some, some, a side note, some homework. Read through Paul's writings, read through the book of Acts, and watch the way Paul functions. That guy never worried about money. He never worried about money. In fact, he had the side job of, of tent making so that he wouldn't have to put a financial burden on those he was reaching. Still, he still, at times, though, he partnered with the church at Philippi, and there was money that was exchanged to help him, but he always was never worried about, okay, am I going to have enough money? Am I going to have enough money? 
Now, that's why he said in Philippians chapter 4, he said, what, I've learned the secret of being content. What's the secret of being content? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether I have everything or I have nothing, I got Jesus. And if I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. This is what I want to close with today. Again, I want to go back to that dream that we talked about at the beginning. And I want us to think about this week, because again, yes, we'll be talking about everybody's favorite topic next week. We'll talk about money again. But I want you to think this week, what if you changed the way you dream about the future? What if you started to dream, what would my life look like if there was more Jesus in my life? If he had a access to all aspects of my life? Because this is one of the things I've discovered. When Jesus is first, then all the things that we think we need that will make us happy, he takes care of those. That's what he said in, in Matthew chapter 6. We stress out about all the stuff we think we need. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Wait, you have the priority wrong. Put the kingdom first. Put me first. And then all the things you worry about, I got that. And now start to dream. What would your life look like if you had more Jesus and you could do anything without the fear or tension of the limitations of money? What would your life look like? I'm the first student. My life would look different than it does today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have provided for us. You provided everything for us. You knew that the deepest need that we had was not money. The deepest need we had was to be forgiven to be reconnected to God, and so you gave your life for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are willing to do that because you took care of the greatest need that we have, and that is the resource for our souls to be connected to God, to have an eternity that is secure, to live free and transformed lives. But Lord, you also think of the things that dominate our lives every day, like money. And even in the context of money, you said these words, you will never leave us, and you will never forsake us. But Lord, I know back in Israel's time, your people, the people who had chosen to follow you, that you sustained them and gave them food, you gave them clothing, and didn't allow their shoes to wear out for 40 years in the desert. That's a God who provides. And that's the kind of God that you are. So Lord, I pray for, for each one of us, if, if we are in a situation today where, Lord, money is a struggle because we see there is a lack in our lives. It could be, Lord, circumstantial. It could be because we've made decisions that we've gotten in over our head. But, Lord, I know that you care about our lives. You care about the struggles that we have financially. So I pray right now that, Lord, as you, you are a God who does this, that you would provide for every need. And, Lord, you would provide, even as you do in salvation, you make up for our shortfall in our own ability to forgive and to be restored back to God. That, Lord, in our shortfall financially, in our debt that's in, when we're in over our head or through our circumstances, I pray, Lord, that you would bring forgiveness to debt, that you would restore what's lost in that. And, Lord, those for, for, for those of us who have an abundance, that, Lord, yeah, you've blessed us with, but just as you blessed Abraham to be a blessing, you've blessed us to be a blessing. So I pray, Lord, that we would see that as well. That you would change our view of money and we would begin to dream, Lord, what would our lives look like if you had the gospel fully dropped, we experienced transformation, money wasn't our focus any longer, and you, Lord, you had plans for us to touch every aspect of our lives, to use us without fear of resource, 
Lord, I pray that you would place the dreams in our hearts this week of what our lives could look like if we were fully surrendered to you with no fear, but Lord, with full faith in who you are in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.